Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. This is Prevail. I'm Greg Oliar. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Zarina Zabriskie is here. My friend fellow author, really good literary person, you know, a literary heavyweight, I have to say. If you can come here from a different country where you speak a different language and master the English language well enough to write as well as she does, uh, hats off to you. And she's not just a writer, a, a literary writer, of course, she's also an activist and she writes about Russian fuckery because she knows about Russian fuckery because she went to one of the schools where they teach Russian fuckery. So you can read her work. She has a great Medium page on Medium that, that goes into this, that, that goes back years now, where she talks a lot about Russian disinformation campaigns, how they work, the psychology behind them, pointing out things here and there. She did a reading series. I think she still does a reading series at Globus Books in San Francisco. They have a fantastic YouTube channel. There's a lot of really engaging conversations on there with authors you know, literary authors and also activist type people, journalists. So some of it is literary. Some of it is, is political. It's all really interesting. And she does a fantastic job with that. She writes occasionally for Byline Times. You can see her on Byline Times has their own show um, on Friday night, which is actually really good. And I encourage you to check that out as well. And of course, you can follow her on the Twitter. It's a great conversation. We talk about, you know, her literary background, we talk about how what happened to Pussy Riot was the thing that inspired her to get into activism, that activated her activism. We talk about combat propaganda, which was an actual class that she had to take because she was a student in the linguistics department at what was then Leningrad State University in what was then the Soviet Union. And she had to take this ridiculous class about combat propaganda, which everyone in the class thought was ridiculous. And now she looks back and she's like, holy shit, this, this is all around me now. So that's an interesting topic of conversation. 
she talks a little bit about how all that stuff works and how the purpose of these disinformation campaigns and this hybrid warfare, the purpose of it is demoralization. It's to make us all be like, oh, what's the fucking point, man? It's all useless anyhow. That's the point, right? And then we talk about stuff going on in Russia. We talk about Putin because I'm curious what's going to happen to him and what his future might hold. I was curious what she thought of that. We talk about dissent and we talk about literature and writing and some of some geeky writer stuff at the end of the podcast. So get used to Zarina also because she's going to come back on down the line on the Prevail podcast and she and I are going to interview people also. Um, I'm not going to say who yet because we have some some people coming in that uh, I'm pretty excited about. So she's going to help me do that. That's going to be really great. She's going to come along in a minute. The other thing I want to say at the top of the show here is that I am really, really glad that California did the right thing. Thank you, California. I am so sick of hearing about this Larry Elder guy. He feels like a character from a movie or a science fiction thing, like some guy they made in the lab. Just the amount of complete crazy bullshit that has come out of this man's mouth in these in these clips that people have dug up. It's like, where do they find these people? How do people get this nuts? Does he really believe this stuff that he's saying? Or is he just saying it to for performative outrage reasons? I don't really understand. But, you know, the way that things are now, we're not far away from somebody like Larry Elder saying, guys, I know we have a water shortage in California. Let's just drink seawater. It's better for you. There's minerals in it. I think it even cures COVID before it starts. And then there'll be this mad rush to go to the to the ocean, to the beach, and, and gobble up seawater. We're really close to people believing that. Like, that's how far gone we are in this country with, it, with people's brains, man. I don't understand what has happened to these people's brains. There's a guy that I passed today on my, on my way home from the store driving his pickup truck with the big stupid flags, two big flags in the back. He had the, the flag with the fucking snake on it, the don't tread on me flag, which he has no idea what it means. And then he has a flag that says Trump on it or whatever. I couldn't read what was underneath it. And why do you have to drive around with flags like that, dude? Like, what are you doing? What do you hope to achieve by that? We get it. You're a fucking idiot. We understand. We, we could see it. I don't know what's worse, the ignorance or the pride they take in being ignorant. It's very, very strange. I don't understand it. I really hope that the nation is able to turn away from this dark moment because a significant percentage of our population is lost probably forever in the brain. And I don't like that. I want those people to be cast away from politics, which is how it should be. And I want the, if there's any more like quote unquote normal Republicans, I want them back. I want that party to rejoin and commit itself to fair and free elections and making voting easy. And I want that party to focus and figure out what the fuck it stands for these days, if not just accumulation of power and denying people the right to vote. Because that's all it seems to be standing for these days. I mean, the leaders of the Republican Party are who? Donald Trump, Greg Abbott in Texas with that horrible law. Who else? DeSantis in Florida, just killing off people that live there. And now this Larry Elder guy that I guy, are we stuck with this guy now? We're going to have to, we're going to have to keep hearing from him because he happens to have an R next to his name and he's a wackadoodle. I, I don't know. I don't know who these people are. They don't seem like they should belong to any serious political party. And I really hope 
that uh you know what they're like they're like bullies they're like high school bullies that's what they're like there's like a couple of these bullies and the rest of the party is held hostage to these bullies and the rest of the people in that party need to stand the fuck up and take down the bullies and reclaim the party liz cheney is trying to do that adam kinzinger is trying to do that work with these guys you know if there's anybody left in the republican party that is in office Come on, guys. Enough is enough. Come together. Do the right thing. We need the Republican Party to be strong here. We don't want it to be the party of tyranny and um, putting women down and racism and willful ignorance and uh, mass death. We don't want that. Nobody wants that. The country's not served by doing that. Please, let's stop this shit. That's it. That's what I have to say about that. Thank you, California. Doing the right thing. Say what you will about Gavin Newsom. At least he's, you know, getting the job done. And if something terrible happens there, um, you know, if Diane Feinstein somehow succumbs to the actuarial tables, now we don't have to worry about the Senate uh, losing balance. We don't have to worry about Larry Elder would have gone in and gotten rid of the mask mandates in the schools, which would have been catastrophic in California and a state that size. So, This is a really good thing. It's good for democracy. It's good for public health. It's just good in general. It's a waste of money. But, you know, Republicans like to waste money. That's what they do. They say that they care about spending and then they just waste fucking money all the time. That's basically their MO. So that's the deal. Again, thank you, California. So that's all I got to say up front. We'll be right back with Zarina Zabriskie. Leo, the creep, the feds are creep. Ray, he covers up the crimes. Me, I tell you about Kavanaugh. Fa, fa, follow the money. Sco, the SCOTUS is corrupt. Law, there is no rule of law. T, we teeter on the brink. And democracy might die, die, die. Leo, the creep, the feds are creep. Ray, he covers up the crimes. Me, I tell you about Kavanaugh. Fa, fa, follow the money. Sco, the SCOTUS is corrupt. Law, there is no rule of law. T, we teeter on the brink. And democracy might die. I'm here with Zarina Zabriskie. Zarina, welcome to the Prevail Podcast. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Okay. I want to start with you so that everybody listening knows exactly who you are. Now, you and I know each other vaguely in a literary way because we both were somewhat, uh, you know, we were affiliated with the Nervous Breakdown, this literary site called the Nervous Breakdown, where I was the very much unpaid, very much volunteer senior editor. And you came on and wrote and wrote some pieces there as well. So I always thought of you, and I still think of you, as, you know, primarily as an author of fiction. Um, but you do all this other stuff too. You're you're a novelist. Thank you're, you for that. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's <laughs> the best introduction I could ever think of. 
And uh, that's not the only reason why I love working with you, but it's certainly much appreciated because that's true. First and foremost, I'm uh, a literary writer who is out of desperation, started to do all these other things. Back yeah, to you. Well, you know, I feel you because I am the same way. You know, I'm like, when, when can I get back to just writing stories about, you know, pretend people who are awful? But you're not just that. You're also you've done performance art and spoken word stuff and visual art and videos, and you're an activist, uh, a journalist. You ran this great uh, video series during your time at Globus Books, where you had all these really interesting people on, whether they were literary people or um, active activists or people in the political sphere. So, you know, what what drew you into this? What was your moment when you were like, I, okay, I have to put aside my own artistic things right now and, 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 you know, and start focusing on all the bad stuff that's happening. Right, right. Well, it, there certainly was a moment like this deciding moment. And I have to say that never in my life I decided that I'm going to stop writing and I'm only going to be doing that because at this point I probably would like put the gun to my head. But <laughs> I, I certainly felt the pressure of um, uh civic duty, if you will. And yeah. such moment was in tw uh, 2012 when the Pussy Riot uh, group uh, did their prank, their, their punk prayer uh, in Moscow, the Red Square. And then they were put on trial, on the public trial. And eventually they were sent to prison for two and a half and three years. There were different sentences. And when I saw it happening, it just kind of blew my mind. And believe it or not, Greg, but before that, I was completely a political being. Nothing, ah. in, not a fiber in me responded to anything political. I never, ever voted in my life until 2016. In no wow. country did I vote. And I, I'll, I'll comment on that. There was no point in comment, uh, in uh, voting uh, back in the USSR because it was all fraud. I mean, it didn't right. matter. Sure. And then when I came to America and became a citizen, it didn't seem to matter because America seemed to be doing quite well without me anyway. And I just <laughs> wasn't interested. It, it all was going fine. I was doing my literature thing. I had other things to worry about. And then... When I saw those girls, these young women, and some of them already had children at the time, just standing up and without any fear, uh, doing things against the authoritarian power that took over my birthplace and being thrown to prison for that, something just changed in me. And I thought, like, I, well, something needs to be done. You can't just go on and watch it happen. And that was this moment for me. I guess everyone has some moment like that in their life. And so I tried to reach someone on the internet and ask, do we have a protest planned here uh, in San Francisco? And the organizer of the protest, another city said, no, why don't you go ahead and organize something? And I've never been to a protest in my life, not once. Yeah. And um so I just went ahead and I organized the protest in front of the Russian consuls, which still existed in San Francisco at the time. And that was my first political uh, adventure or, or, or thing. And of course, it didn't change anything. And starting from then, I, I started to get more and more involved gradually trying to help the Russian opposition. 
And then from there, as we've discussed one time before with you in an interview, I just realized that the we are the opposition. There's the world opposition because the Kremlin is yeah. not only operating on their own territory, they are now starting to meddle around in the United States. And that's and that's when I got fully involved in that. Well, I'm glad that you that, that you saw the light that you had your come to Damascus or road to Damascus <laughs> moment because you've been so so effective and so great at at, at what you do and you know, one of the things is identifying and, and giving platforms to um, people, especially in Russia, who are doing this work and are on the front lines. And, you know, we'll talk more about that uh, probably later on in the in the second half of, of the podcast. Right. But um, so you were born and raised in what was then Leningrad. Right. Yes. Now, which is now St. Petersburg. Uh, again, now again, St. Petersburg. What and you you were there when when communism fell, right? When when that happened? Yes, I was there. It's not like it fell in one one fine day. Yeah. It fell down. It was pretty much fallen, you know, as far as I can remember it. It was like disintegrating. You you lived in this decomposing. Uh, not communism, socialism, you know, we like technically we were building communism, but never built it. Right. We yeah. were living during the developing socialism, only it wasn't developing really. It was already dead and falling apart. <laughs> so it was quite stuffy in there. And um, it's true, the city was called Leningrad and the country was called the USSR. So it's always a problem when I have to fill in some official papers and documents for visa purposes or whatever, because neither the country of my birth nor the city of my birth exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, you're right. It's, it's a... <laughs> um, so, and you went when you were there, and this is what's interesting, you went to Leningrad State, which is now, I guess, not called that anymore either. So I, it's called St. Petersburg State. Yeah. And you majored in, in linguistics and, and, and English literature. Obviously, you're, as we discussed, primarily a, a literary creature. Um, but you also studied when you were there something called combat propaganda. Right. And this is something that I've been talking about quite often during the last, what, uh, since 2015, already yeah. six years. I know. Since I noticed that this combat propaganda has penetrated our society as well. And uh, it's not like I chose a course in propaganda. Uh, <laughs> you have to understand that things work differently. We didn't have uh, a number of subjects we chose from. If you, if you were in a certain department and I was in the English department, uh, you you could actually choose between linguistics and uh, literary theory, which uh, I did the, the latter. Uh, but in the beginning, you studied both linguistics and literature. And if you were to speak the languages, especially the English language, you had to take the course in the combat propaganda. Because if you didn't, out you go and no diploma and no education. So it, it wasn't a matter of like, hmm, should I now study some propaganda? It was once a week, we had to go to the separate building, uh, which was quite an ancient building from the 17th century, actually, from the eight, this one was from the 18th century. And uh, it looked it too, it was 
probably never repaired since then. And uh, it was all very secretive. We had to check in our documents at the door. Uh, we had to check our bags, I think, at the door. So we didn't have very much with us. Uh, and they would check us on the way out. And uh, there, there was a big safe with our notebook books and I, I spoke about it and I remember in the interview with you mm -hmm. and a few other pieces I did on that because it's very theatrical. Right. Uh, you could you could almost sense it because each of us was assigned a notebook and in this notebook all the pages were uh, numbered. We had to number them and then they had to be poked with this giant needle, almost like a shoemaker needle in two places and then there was a rope that went around and then there was the, um, the seal made with the male wax, yeah, like yeah. this red, smelly thing, uh, and like 19th century, you know. It was, oh, and yeah. it was stamped and checked every time when we came out to make sure that there were no pages taken out of it. A very dramatic episode that I've shared multiple times again is that um, one time uh, some pages were found in the restroom because there was no toilet paper in the Soviet Union and somebody <laughs> need use this toilet, uh, this uh, pages with the notes. Uh, and the, our uh, professor who was Cornell, uh, Lieutenant Cornell, found them and there was interrogation who used them. It was, it was ridiculous. The whole thing was funny because at that time it was um, already the very end of the Soviet Union and nobody really took it quite seriously. And in our department, we had only girls because all the guys had to serve in the army. It was the Afghanistan war, war for us at the time, okay. for us even there, for the Soviets. And so we only had girls and there were a number of girls who did their nails and you know were knitting or doing God only knows what's a makeup. And this, you know, unfortunately, Lieutenant Colonel who would draw the tank divisions and battalions, you know, skins on the whiteboard. And we had to memorize quite a bit. And uh, I just slapped through the whole thing with my main memory that I was sleeping with my face down in the secret notebook. <laughs> I expect that you know, the, that they did this to sort of cultivate and identify people who were good at it, right? They made everybody take it. So if they saw people with promise who, who took to it, they would then, I guess, direct those people along that path. Clear, clearly not you. I, I think by then it was too late anyway, but. <laughs> clearly, clearly. But I think a lot of people did go that way. And, you know, it was compulsory for everybody who's studied languages because we were we could be translators and it was um, in many ways which i probably didn't realize as much then but it was in quite an elite establishment so they had high hopes for 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 people like us and a lot of us didn't work out we ended up most of us living abroad and doing our own thing. But there were people who continued on that path and worked for the KGB uh, and, uh, you know, then established the troll factories. And I mean, people like myself probably never worked as trolls. They probably were the, the troll team leaders or right. the engineers 
<laughs> behind the troll factories. But uh, when I was doing my research on uh, uh, Prigozhin's uh, troll factories, I-, I noticed that most of the uh, workers at these factories were recruited indeed from the philological faculty. That makes sense. Okay, you mentioned Prigozhin. Just t- tell us who he is in case people don't know. Allegedly, everything that we can say is allegedly because I think pretty much nothing was proven. We don't have the evidence, but according to many reports, both in the uh, Russian uh, independent press and in uh, the Western uh, uh, mass media and uh, investigation reports, uh, Prigozhin is a person very close to Putin uh, from the very early on. They were uh, functioning together in the 90s in St. Petersburg mayor's office. And uh, Prigozhin is often given a nickname of Putin's chef uh, because Mm. he he has quite an empire. He has a uh, a lot of enterprises who that do catering and that's all kind of catering from the Kremlin reception caterings to uh, military and uh, kindergartens and schools. Uh, so it's a big chunk of industry that Prigozhin runs. But he he there's a lot of diversity there. He's also uh, allegedly runs a, a private security company, and um, uh, he's uh, in charge of some military uh, actions, again, according to some reports. Uh, and I, I did uh, do a big investigation on of his activities myself. You can find it on my blog on Medium. There are lots of interesting details there with a lot of references. I'm glad you. I'm glad you talked about your blog on Medium because that's it. Really, is a lot of good stuff on there, and I I'm, I'm going to post the link to it. But I encourage people to to check it out now. You know, Putin's chef who does all this catering. I would have to say I would not want to accept food from anybody that was that close to Putin because I, I mean, are there food tasters? Do these people? They must have like food tasters and stuff like that. that uh, we don't know. With that, we don't know even <laughs> allegedly. But. I, 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 I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll just eat my cliff bars and call it a day. I think, you know, that, that's fine. So some of the, some of the, um, the thinking behind, as I understand it, the, the combat propaganda is to, is obviously trying to spread disinformation and influence public opinion about certain things and to present Putin now, and I'm talking about not in the 90s, but in the here and now as somebody who is a friend to the United States. And you mentioned when we when we talked um, in our interview or the written interview that we did, that you saw a, uh, or your friend saw a, a picture, a photograph of Putin hugging a, a koala bear. And the caption read, Putin is your friend. And, and next to that were these sort of like anti-American subtle sentiments so and that clicked something in your brain about the combat propaganda right right that that was another pivotal moment for me along with the pussy riot you know (laughs) epiphany uh, that i've seen that i've seen that when i saw i was at the bus uh, stop and i i I saw this uh, like almost a a life-size 
photograph cut out, I remember it so well, cut out of the cardboard and with a koala bear. And it just struck me that this is using the this those recipes, those tactics that we were taught that I, you know, half slept through and half forgotten. It was a long time ago and I never used it. And it and it was just like my eyes open and I started to look and I started to see that it's happening. It started to happen online on Facebook. Um, it started yeah. to arrive to my uh, friends' um, email boxes in Russian, you know, in the Russian emails going around, written exactly like the pamphlets that we had to write for exercises. And <laughs> I, I just realized that it was a massive, strategically planned attack. Uh, and at the time, you have to understand, Greg, that when you have this uh, thought, you think, am I losing my mind? Am I becoming a paranoid sure. case who should just call 911 and enroll myself in the clinic? Because I, I, I'm not prone to conspiracy theories. I don't yeah. like to connect things this way. Uh, and if, if somebody does, I, I question it harshly sure you know i've been taught to use critical thinking and so in the beginning there was this you know moment of disbelief and hesitation am i right i i don't know for a fact there's no place to to check there's no one to ask and if i do ask someone people were telling me you you are in fact insane so it took me a while to do my checks uh to check my facts right. uh, to, to, to compare, to gradually uh, establish this um, foundation and show that, yes, it is in fact happening. And of course, since then, we know that it all happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we Since then, we had Mueller's report, we had multiple intelligence agencies' reports, including the Russia report in the UK and the uh, Intelligence Committee yeah, uh, in the United five. States, yeah. the European Union, you name it. But at the time, in 2015, uh, in 2016, it was just me uh, starting to ring the bell and having a hard time convincing people that it's actually possible. And also one thing that I should mention is those um, classes of combat propaganda, they were classified. So other Russians did not know that these classes existed. Okay. And it's not like we went around talking about them. They were not that interesting. You know, nobody <laughs> Clearly, was yeah. really paying attention to it. So now if you look at the uh, Russian language uh, information space, you will see that people doubt the existence of these classes. And that's another blow, you know, the gaslighting. Yeah. You know, like they ask you, are you sure? Like, how do you prove that you were in this class? And I mean, yeah, the... The, we, we didn't have that many people in our department. I heard uh, nine, nine people in my group, and it, it, it's not a lot. So no, nobody knows that it existed. You know, it's hard to find information about it on the web. But uh, so, but one by one, the, the, yes, this Putin with Koala started it. But I noticed that you said that the message was that Putin is uh, the friend of the United States. Yes and no. You know, in the, uh, there certainly was one line 
of thought that would promote the friendly Putin, Putin mm-hmm. the savior of fundamental traditions, Putin who loves the hardworking Americans. There was a line like this. But at the same time, there was a line of Putin the warrior, Putin uh, who definitely in, in, in the interior uh combat propaganda, the one that was targeting the Russian population or Russian speaking element is that the United States is bad, bad, bad. Obama is bad, bad, bad. Uh, And uh, Putin is fighting and confronting the United States dominance in the world. So, and that's what they do. It's actually very typical of mixing one, two, three, five different narratives and picking the one that suits the moment. So it it is actually very complicated. So you can't just uh, box it. It's way more complex that our idea of psychology behind the advertisement, say. Okay. Yeah, yeah, before you mentioned gaslighting, and I had written down that word before you you brought it up to, to point it out, one of the if not the goal of this sort of disinformation warfare, this information uh, warfare and these attacks is not to change the perception of things as much as just to destroy our ability to differentiate between fact and fiction and what's real and what's not real. So case in point, you, you know, people questioning whether the, the classes exist, you were in the fucking class, you know, it exists and still you're wondering, you're going back to your head thinking, Am I right about this? I, I've had that feeling so many times the last four years thinking, wait, did, did this happen? No, tr- Trump really did do that. Yeah, 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 he did. And I have to go back and check the reports and oh yeah, no, my memory is correct. He did do whatever awful thing it is that I'm writing about, but it does, it starts to you know, wear on your brain. It starts to, I, I, I feel like the, the bandwidth that it takes to combat this stuff and see through it is enormous like mentally it's it's challenging to try to even sift through it the the media in the united states especially the television media does not help at all they're, they're just mostly might as well just be working for the bad guys at this point so um it's interesting to hear you say that and i i identify with it because you know it's hard to it's hard sometimes to to have confidence that what we're saying is true even though what we're saying is clearly true. You go back to what you said, the Mueller report and the report in, in the UK and volume five and all this stuff and, you know, and everything. And it's, it's right there for all of us to see. Well, you see, you're so right about that because the uh, key word in uh, combat propaganda and military propaganda is demoralization, the demoralization of the adversary. Mm, yes. And that's what they do. They're not messing with your, uh, idea of what is true they are undermining the idea of truth itself right right they they say and you, very often you can hear say margarita simonyan who's the chief editor of uh, rt the russia today and sputnik the the main kremlin's mouse uh, pieces and they would say uh, what is truth it is all subjective there is yeah. no truth. And they really go into this whole philosophical realm, but it's popular philosophy and dumbed down. Yeah. But they uh, do what uh, Vladislav Surkov, who was Putin's aide for a very long time, wrote in his infamous 
op-ed in 2019 that the uh, Western analysts uh, claim that uh, the Kremlin propaganda, the Kremlin trolls, are meddling with the referendums and elections. Uh, but they say it for the lack of a better word. What the Kremlin does, they uh, interfere with the brain. They go inside the brain and act from there. So they change, they swap the whole set of values, the whole structure and system of thinking that exists in the democracy. That's the goal. Uh, so it, as you could see, if you, it, it's hard to uh, actually conceive it. The, the, the concept itself is too big sometimes yeah. to take in because you can do it. If you change the narrative completely, you change the whole political landscape without uh, a, a drop of blood. You just have the whole country. And the, the examples of it is Brexit. The example of it is uh, Trump. Uh, when, when, when just by incepting the ideas, we change, they change the society, which yeah. they have. Yeah. I, I, I maintain that those are two, two fronts in the same war. It's the same op, two different countries, you know, c clearly the aim of, of, of weakening the United States and the UK and, and splitting us apart, splitting Americans and, and the British apart, um, you know, and, and wildly successful. In a, in, a, in a very sad way. Um, and it's been nice to see Biden kind of push back on this now, uh, certainly with, with regards of the, the UK alliance. And Boris Johnson was looked like a puppy dog next to Biden when I saw pictures of that. That was nice to see, even though, I mean, you know, he's, he's bad, that guy. Yeah. So, well, um, I, I, I agree with you. And um, I just wish that uh, the Biden-Harris administration addressed this issue of the hybrid war and the mind war on a more fundamental level, uh, because, say, in the UK, they, they don't have this possibility right now with Boris Johnson. But in the United States, we do. I actually have a, an article that I wrote in the very beginning of uh, the Biden's presidency uh, in the byline time of uh, the, the key factors to address that's going into education, that's going and addressing uh, these very issues that we're talking about and addressing the flow of disinformation and the flow of brainwashing that is uh, still coming at us uh, on a daily basis. Yeah. He's talked about it a little bit, but yeah, I agree. There needs to be more and it needs to be, we need to treat this like it were under attack because we, you know, we are under attack. And I feel like Biden must understand this. I mean, his son is a key target in all of this Russian propaganda. I mean, it, you know, you, he's been attacked personally uh, in his family by his son who, you know, is, is um, what's the word? He's, he's at risk. He's, he's, um, you know, clearly they're attacking him for a reason because they perceive him to be a weakness that that Joe Biden has. And that's as a father has to feel horrible, you know. So I think for him, it must be at least at some level personal. I'll be interested to see what, if anything, he does now to combat uh, Putin, who, you know, so far, I think that the the first summit meeting, I wasn't thrilled. I know you weren't thrilled about it happening at all. Um 
I think if it was going to happen, he he did it. It it, it looked like it needed to be what it needed to be, which was him saying, "Okay, here's what we're doing," and then getting up and leaving. And it seems like it was much shorter than. I think people anticipated he he didn't seem like he was all kumbaya at the end he he felt like biden did he he sounded like he knew that putin was going to double cross him all this stuff and yet i haven't seen much so far where we're going after this guy and, and i don't know if we're going to eventually and we're just picking our spot and he has the other things to deal with first i don't know what what's your sense about that I, I wish I could be more optimistic than I am because um, I know that I'm not the only one who was severely disappointed in the decision on the North uh, Stream pipeline yeah. too. Uh, and this whole document, I don't know, have you happened to read the document, uh, you know, with the Merkel and Biden pen together? It's like the, the vaguest thing, you, you know, like just for the writerly exercise, how to write vaguely, read this <laughs> document. It's a document that says nothing. Yeah. And uh, on the other hand, it does quite something. And uh, it, it was like an early Christmas present to Putin to allow this pipeline uh, claiming that it is too late to do anything, that this was already complete, you know, and give uh, Russia the access to the gas infrastructure of Europe and making Europe so dependent on the worst adversary for the main resource. You know, in the winter, if they switch off the gas, they all go, you know, turn into icicles. I, 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 I just was so disappointed. I'm not even mentioning Ukraine that got really dumped in the process and a um, number of other uh, issues with it. But just, it's basically empowering the Kremlin while speaking, words are cheap, you know, saying that yeah. Putin is a killer doesn't mean anything if you allow the killer to extend the pipeline. <laughs> And yeah. because that's the way you have to uh, for the I, I, I know you do. That's what you've been doing and uh, talking about. And I, I, I think your audience also knows about it. But if there's someone out there who didn't hear this, you know, the, the, the way the Kremlin makes money is through selling the uh, illegally appropriated national resources of Russian people, which is mainly oil and gas plus other raw uh, right. product. So, so to give a yes and the green light to finish the pipeline that pumps gas to Germany and to uh, basically allow Russia to, to have all this money that is then uh, channeled into attacking us, you know, through the troll factories. Why? I, I, I cannot, I mean, that, that's just my take on it. It's very disappointing. It's, I mean, you mentioned Ukraine and on, on the show, uh, one of the most popular episodes, in fact, I had Victor Rudd, who is a, um, a lawyer in America. He's the, he was the chair of the Ukrainian American, um, what's it called? Bar Association. So he talked, he's an expert in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis Russia and, you know, talked at length about all this stuff that, that we just ignore. I mean, Ukraine had more nuclear weapons in 1991 than any country on earth except for Russia and the United States, and they surrendered them. They gave them to Russia 
with the uh, understanding that we that we would come to their aid and and Europeans would come to their aid if they were invaded, and then Putin invades and we don't do shit. You know, so, so, some sanctions and that's it. I mean, it's it's one of the the key tenets of of world global policy since 1945. He's not allowed to fucking invade another country. You can't do that. You know, Saddam Hussein tried it in 1991. We sent a force in. We sent him back, and we corrected th- that. And that that Gulf War, even though at the time I was I didn't really understand it, I think was a success because it 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 did neutralize his territorial ambitions. And now Putin does basically the same thing. And we just oh, here's some a couple of sanctions that aren't that that are easy for you to. Uh, and, and he's just going to keep right on doing it. But you know, you get, this is the bully has to be punched in the proverbial face, you know. And I that's not on Biden. Obama did that. That was an Obama failure. But Biden was around, and I don't know what he can do now to 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 correct for that mistake uh, of the previous administration. But well, let let's get a, let's get to Putin though, because there's so much rumor swirling around him. There was the rumor that he had Parkinson's. There's there's kind of this um, this thought that he over that he overreached that the Trump thing was almost too much, and that now everyone knows what he's up to, and that's bad. Um, I was listening to. Uh, Frank Fuglisi, who's the uh, former counterintelligence director for the FBI on my friend Lincoln Bible's podcast, and he was saying there's a, there is a thinking in, in, in Russia. There's, there's rumors that there are forces there that don't want him there anymore, that want him gone. So what do you think about that? Is, is he, 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 from what I say, he looks weak. All the Navalny stuff makes him look weak, I think. So is he weak? Is he on the way out? And if he's on the way out, who's going to replace him and will it be worse? I mean, <laughs> from your lips to the God's ears, what do they say? I wish it was true. I Nothing from what I hear or I know, unfortunately, confirms this theory. Uh, not when you look at what's happening back there. And I'm looking because I'm... Uh, trying to do what I can to help the Russian opposition, writing about it, sometimes interviewing people, really. So, uh, no, if anything, let's take it one by one. With Parkinson, there's a lot of rumors going around at all times, you know, that he's getting married, that he's getting triplets, that he's not even him, that there's like this, his third double because oh, real Putin was there. I mean, this kind of things you just filter out and don't pay any attention anymore. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't see any grounds to do the Parkinson thing. He's extremely healthy. Uh, I mean, the guy doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. He's been doing martial arts all his life. Uh, he's a health not it uh, i mean i i i'm not happy to say it but i'm afraid he will outlive all of us <laughs> <laughs> i mean so I, i'm i hope i'm wrong and i hope i just really don't know something that you guys know but uh yeah I, I i can't comment other than that on the parkinson as for him being weak um not so much not at the moment because yes his ratings are going down but the whole idea of ratings in Russia is something uh, quite inapplicable to Russia because, you you know, all the polls are uh, falsified. And besides, you know, if you are 
being put to prison for a joke or a tweet, if you stopped in the street to answer Paul, will you really tell the truth? Yeah. You know, probably not. And uh, so I wouldn't rely too, too much on statistics. It's c clear that he's extremely unpopular. We had hundreds of thousands of people in the streets that we watched from here, from the West, right. hitting... Uh, Russia, you know, there was a protest rolling in January through March, uh, three, three massive protests that rolled through Russia. Uh, so the, the, all these people who are very unhappy and were braving COVID and riot police and freezing temperatures to, to fight it. But yeah. they, they are still, are they in majority? Are they in minority? We don't know because the majority is silenced and is at home and not speaking up uh, for everybody has fear. I mean, fair enough. I mean, nobody wants, most people don't want to go to prison or having their uh, children arrested or, you know, there's a lot of consequences to speaking up. Sure. So on the other hand, there's this massive crackdown on the opposition, uh, pretty much all the opposition leaders, Navalny's uh, um, allies, are either under home arrest or in prison or serving sentence already or facing trials. The criminal charges against them in a so-called sanitary case uh, for uh, exposing people to COVID by calling them to go protest uh, against oh, the yeah. treatment of the valley. So uh, they are not allowed to use internet. They are not allowed to leave their houses. Whoever could leave or wanted to leave left Russia. So some opposition is like sprinkled around the world abroad. There's uh, a massive exodus of young people who are trying to get out of there if they only can yeah. uh, and uh, to to conclude all this uh, just this year there was a, a referendum uh, in which we don't know if people really voted for it or if it was uh, fraud but the result is that Putin extended his terms he basically rewrote the constitution there were right, the amendments right. and so now can he can stay for two more six-year presidential terms he's basically turning into this immortal kashebi smerde which is a character of the russian fairy tale that will <laughs> rule there indefinitely uh so yeah that that that's how it looks from here and the yeah, and the voice of dis of dissent is being completely stumped into the ground with a uh, with the newspapers and media outlets being closed. That's pretty much the situation. It doesn't sound like um, you know there's much hope, but I feel like what the United States and the West can do is help. You know, with those efforts, like from what I understand the more that we can get the word out about this, the better. And using Russian um, or Russian intelligence tactics against them is probably the way to go. And in our case, we don't have to use disinformation. We can use real information to, you know, sort of tur turn the mirror on them and, and, and let it implode from within. You know, U.S. used to be really good at that. We did it once before there, so maybe we'll be able to do it again. I don't know. Um, so well, I, 
I feel I feel that's what we are doing, and you are in the big part. And thank you for that because I know that you also sacrificing your writing, which is a right I know is the most <laughs> important thing. You're sacrificing your writing time and the mental space to write your own books, to do what you do with uh, uh, your podcast, with your Twitter account, with investigations. And that that's, that's really laudable. That's what makes the difference. That's what can help uh, not just the Russian opposition, but that what can help us to, to survive this attack, to survive this hybrid war, to, to bring uh, the states uh, back to, I wouldn't say to stability, but to a place where we used to exist, which wasn't perfect, which wasn't ideal, but it, which, it was way more healthy than what we're having now. Yeah. No, th thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I feel like the, I, I ha you know, like you said before, it's my civic duty. It really is. And the irony is that I have a much bigger audience now than I, <laughs> than I did before for any of, the, any of the things I write, which is a silver lining, certainly. But, um, you know, I, I just, I don't know what else there is to do. I mean, we're, we're, we came so close to losing everything, so close to losing everything in this country. And I, people just don't understand it. So, and it's all tied together. The, the, the January the 6th stuff is tied to Putin. It's Russian intelligence is tied to, you know, other intelligence agencies in, in, in you know, elsewhere they're, you know, working uh, hand in glove to, you know, with organized crime and global corruption to basically attack democracy everywhere. So you're either on the side of, of democracy or you're on the side of the bad guys. And it's, it's pretty clear, you know, and, and I feel like everybody that has some sort of platform or some sort of uh, talent to, 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 to bear on this is it, it's required, you know, it's just, it's just one of the things that we do. I, I we, we, we open talking about our, you know, the nervous breakdown and, and the literary people. I have to, so many writers that I know have not really been involved with this. And it, it's, it's weird I agree. to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't understand Therefore, it. I, I have a lot of respect for you for doing this. I mean, um, I know for me, it hurts. I, it took six years out of my writing life. That's a long time for a writer. Yeah. To, to be investigating Russian oligarchs whom I detest. <laughs> it's really, I hate, the thing that's the hardest about this is that we have to spend so much time and mental energy focusing on people that are awful and who in real life I would just completely despise. And what what, what is it, Hannah Arendt's The Banality of Evil? You know, just these people are so dumb and they're so shallow um, and so powerful and terrifying in their shallowness and cruelty and everything else. And it would be so much nicer to not have to, you know, <laughs> focus. On. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, the funny thing, uh, at some point when I was in the midst, you know, the Trump era and doing my investigations, I had to actually do some of my work, investigative work, in the bath with a computer. I got like the special bamboo little table that I put to work <laughs> on it because I felt so dirty. But of course I ended up drowning my computer, my Mac in the oh, bath. No. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> I hope it wasn't plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is, there, there is that sense. And it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how, uh, I, so it occurred to me, I don't know, maybe about three years ago that I'm probably going to spend the rest of my life writing about this stuff. And it's just, I don't know, I wouldn't have predicted the turn, but it is what it is. And, 
you know, we have to do what we have to do. So I want to talk um, before before we take our break. I want to just shout out your fiction, which which is excellent. You've run uh, some pieces on my site on the on the Sunday pages. Um, and you seem to still be writing stuff. You are still working on your fiction, which God bless you. I don't, I, I haven't been able to do that quite as much. And, and I really hope to get back to it a little bit, but, um, yeah. And now you're, you're, are you working on something new now? Is that what you're doing? Well, thank you for asking that. That means a lot to me because of course, you know, I still have the, my writing, writing, the real writing yeah, at yeah. number one place, but it's, it's a struggle. But yeah, I finally, now that we seem to be sort of of the wood, you know, the woods, not really, but yeah, yeah, I yeah, decided yeah. to take some time. And um, next month, um, I'm actually going to Ukraine to hide away from the world and finish the novel that I started uh, about two and a half, three years ago. And it actually has uh, something to do with, with everything that just happened. Uh, it is not uh, uh, per se the Trump era uh, exploration investigation, you know, the, mm -hmm. the writing of the scene of our life as it is, as it was. Uh, because it goes back in history, it takes uh, several generations, sort of like, I wouldn't say it's a family saga, because there's a plot uh, that is different, but it involves history, the historical layer that is there, and that also goes transatlantic, because um, uh, the, the, the events are happening in the United States, but it also goes back to Europe and to Russia, to several countries. So it's um, it's quite ambitious <laughs> in this. Uh, uh, in a way, uh, if uh, anybody is familiar, there's um, Gogol's Dead Souls, mm -hmm. uh, where there's uh, one person going uh, selling the non-existent serfs to various uh, surf owners in Russia. So it's a journey, like, kind of like an odyssey where you get to see different people. So that that that's the vehicle. So there, there are actually two journalists uh, uh, or the people who became journalists, journalists, uh, um, activists who, who are pursuing this one idea that they got and they're seeing all these other people. And at the same time, uh, things are unrolling, leading us into COVID and terrorist attacks. And uh, so, um, yeah, it, it just how it arrives to me. I, I don't, I don't know how you write, Greg. I always love asking people how they write and how, how does it come to you? To me, I, I can only write in the morning when I just wake up. Same thing. And me too. I, I see a movie in my head. I, I have this film that is going mm -hmm. on and I'm just writing things down. So, but if, if I don't do it right away, I, I, I don't see it. It wouldn't come to me. And then I, I can sit down and just put the words on the paper. That's how I write my articles or essays or nonfiction. But for, for the novel or short stories or poems, it all arrives to me, which, you know, I'm a, 
uh, Manasseh. So it's not like it's, uh, you know, some uh, divine inspiration, although I, I do like the idea of divine inspiration, but I think it's my subconscious at work. And yeah. I need to be in a certain state to translate. Although, there, you know, it is to be debated. Surrealists said that there is a voice this is a collective voice that is talking to you and through you. So I like this idea a lot. Yeah, no, I, I, I write in the morning also, and I find that sometimes I'll, I'll go to bed thinking about something that I need to do the next day, especially with this, with Prevail, with the Substack columns. You know, I, I, have, a, I have deadlines and I'm like, okay, I got to write this thing tomorrow, but I'm, I, I don't know what to do about this or what the title is going to be. And more often than not, I'll wake up and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's that's what that's how I'll start it. Or this is where it'll go or whatever. You know, sleep is so critical, I find. And I, one thing I have to say, knock wood, during this Trump era, I have slept really well, I have to say, especially in quarantine. I have not had any trouble at all sleeping. Maybe, uh, you know, they say, how can you sleep at night? I sleep fine. I sleep great. Yeah. I wake up early, but I sleep I sleep well. And um, I have a, a novel that I that I wrote in 2015 that I I'm tweaking now. It's a historical novel set in the Byzantine empire. And I'm going to publish that I think in the fall, this fall. So um, I'm, I'm getting, it's not, it's not writing it, but I'm going back and kind of getting into that mindset again. And when I wrote that man, I was really inspired to write that thing. It was like, I'd read a little bit of history book in the evening and then I'd wake up like possessed almost to finish this thing. So I felt yeah. very, very moved, M more so than anything else I've ever done to, to really, you know, want to commit it to paper and, and, and get the project going. So I don't know, we'll see if anybody, <laughs> if anybody cares or likes it. Uh, but you know, that, that, that all we can best, do is create the thing. You know, people read it, they the read best it. Healing, right, right. Yeah. I mean, for me, I only love the process of writing. I love writing it. Everything that comes afterwards, I hate. Yes. I yeah. hate editing. I hate being involved with publishers and editors. I hate promoting the books. Yeah, I hate, promotion is, is just death. I yeah. hate, every, and I don't even like going back to my, I have five books. I have a novel and three story collection and poetry book. I never read anything I've written before. I mean, it's been done. It's been said. It, it's some, you know, there are some occasions when I have to read from my books, right? Uh, and I still stand by it, most of it, not all of it, but I mean, okay, it's fine. Yeah. But I, I, I'm not interested in it anymore. I'm only interested in writing what, what comes to me now. Yeah, no, I, I, I am exactly that way too. Like so once something's done, you know, I don't, <laughs> well, I had Father Mucker came out and Father Mucker is about the day in the life of a stay-at-home dad. That's my second novel. And so after that came out, I got a lot of interest, you know, people wanted me to read books like that or talk about parenting. And I'm like, I don't ever want to think about these things again. Yeah. Like, never exactly. again, you know, I just yeah. stop. Like, <laughs> I'm done with that, man. You know, uh, it's like this saying for the shark to be alive, it has to keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, don't that the shark is a sympathetic character, but you know, like it, it just, if you start looking back it, and that's why, I don't know, and, and I don't want to be critical, of, uh, but I had a feeling that in the literary community, it often happens, people are being stuck at the same poem or the same story, the same narrative, and it keeps coming again and again and again. And um, I, I mean, at least with journalism, 
it cannot happen because you address what's actually happening. Yes. If anything, it's jumping from one thing to another way too fast. I, yes. I don't know, for me, it's something in, in not neither the, the one nor the other. It's, it's something where you're moving along, you're moving forward, upwards and onwards, but at the same time, you're trying to take time to find some depth in what you're doing. And that's what journalism doesn't provide for. Everything is happening so quickly that oftentimes we overlook things. And that's why I feel us writers, the original writers of fiction, sometimes are better than journalists, journalists who were trained as journalists, right. because we we look into the, the, the hopefully we are look we like to look into the root of what is happening. And and creating the entire narrative for the full picture of the story. You know, exactly. I, I don't think it's any accident that a lot of the people that have that have done good reporting about this time are ha, have some sort of liter, literature background. I, or, or, you know, it's English majors. Finally, it's our moment. Yay. Good for us. <laughs> um, OK, so <laughs> Zarina's. <laughs> I always have problems. I'm always afraid I'm going to pronounce your name wrong. Zarina Zabriskie. It contains the word risky. See, that's that's how we know. Like Zarina Zabriskie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're on Twitter at Zarina Zabriskie, right? That's your Twitter handle. Right. Your website Although, is also zarinazabriskie.com. Right. I I'm um, I only tweet when I feel that nobody else is tweeting about it. So it's not a good strategy. Okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> But um, and, 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 you know, you've got stuff on Byline Times and that especially the, the, the YouTube channel for Globus. You did a lot of really great, great work it, there. Yeah, that I would recommend is completely different. There is some journalism there, but mainly it's literary uh, programs uh, and there's a wide variety of them. That was my uh cherish uh, project, uh, like a child project of mine when I uh, <laughs> do a quite short uh, uh, gig at Globus running an independent bookstore, which seemed like a um, daydream job, but I, I, I just prefer to read and write books, not to sell them. So uh, I, I moved on. So I don't run Globus anymore, but uh, I do still continue preparing the uh, and hosting literary shows. Uh, and uh, cultural shows. So it's Globus Books SF on youtube.com. And there's anything from art and the latest translations uh, and the classics of Russian literature. It's a Russophone literatures uh, translated into English. 99% of the shows are in English. So I do recommend a lot of interesting artists and writers came to talk to me for which I'm very grateful. Yeah, no, and there's good, you recommended this great book, which is uh, In Memory of Memory by Maria Stepanova, which is really good. Um, I'm reading it slowly, but it's really, really good. Anyway. Yeah, it, it yeah. was shortlisted for Booker Prize, and uh, I, I was fortunate to do an interview with Maria Stepanova, and it, it, it's a great interview. I, I do recommend reading a book and listening to Yeah, yeah. It's really good stuff. Really high art, high art. High, you read it, you're like, oh, wow, this, she's really got it going on. Really yeah. Good. yeah. Um, Serena, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sofia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signadella, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.